I want to begin with a couple of poems that uh, in some ways, you know, poets are, are, are have uh, origin stories like Spider-Man, you know. Um, we all began somewhere, and I want to tell you where I began uh, and how. My first poet, my first book of poems, because they're, they uh, mean something to me even now, all these years later. Um, I am uh, indeed coming to you from Amherst. I, I drove here yesterday. Um, but I am originally from the uh, tropical paradise of Brooklyn, New York. I am from the East New York section of Brooklyn. I grew up there in the Linden Projects. And it's uh, a very unlikely place to find a poet. Um, but indeed, that's where I came from. And indeed, that is exactly where I met my first poet. Um, it so happens he was from uh, another planet altogether. It was called um, East Harlem. And his name was Jack. Agueros. Uh, Jack Agueros uh, became a second father to me. Uh, Jack Agueros was a poet, but he was more than that. He was uh, a fiction writer. He was a translator. Uh, he was um, the director of um, the uh, only Puerto Rican museum in New York City. Uh, in fact, the only Puerto Rican museum in the United States at that time, El Museo del Barrio. Uh, and uh, every Three Kings Day, January 6th, Jack would organize a, a parade of camels and sheep right through the streets of East Harlem into the snow. That's the kind of visionary he was. Um, I met him through my father. They were running buddies. Uh, they were activists together. Um, they were uh, doing a lot of things together, which is how uh, it was that Jack originally came to me. Um, and one day I had an opportunity to pay him back. When Jack was diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer's disease, um, a bunch of us got together and organized a benefit for him in uh, the very East Harlem community where he was born and raised, the very school he attended as a child. Um, and I wrote this poem for the occasion um, some 10 years ago. It's called Blessed Be the Truth Tellers for Jack Agueros. In the projects of Brooklyn, everyone lied. My mother used to say, if somebody starts a fight, just walk away. Then somebody would smack the back of my head and dance around me in a circle, laughing. When I was 12, pus bubbled on my tonsils, and everyone said, after the operation, you can have all the ice cream you want. I bragged about the deal. No longer would I chase the ice cream truck down the street, panting at the bells to catch Johnny the ice cream man who allegedly sold heroin the color of vanilla from the same window. Then, Jack, the truth teller, visited the projects. Jack, who herded real camels and sheep through the snow of East Harlem every three kings day. Jack, who wrote sonnets of the jail cell and the racetrack and the boxing ring. Jack, who crossed his arms in a hunger strike until the mayor hired more Puerto Ricans. And Jack said, you're going to get your tonsils out. Ay, bendito frito Puerto Rico. That's gonna hurt. I was 
etherized, then woke up on the ward, heaving black water onto white sheets. A man poking through his hospital gown leaned over me and sneered, You think you got it tough? Look at this, and showed me the cauliflower tumor behind his ear. I heaved up black water again. The ice cream burned. Vanilla was a snowball spike with bits of glass. My throat was red as a tunnel on fire after the head-on collision of two gasoline trucks. This is how I learned to trust the poets and shepherds of East Harlem. Blessed be the truth-tellers, for they shall have all the ice cream they want. Oh, I think of that as my Ben and Jerry's poem. And yes, I have visited the factory. Um, so indeed, he was my first poet. Um, but my first book of poems would come to me some years later. And the source was surprising. The source was my father. Now, mind you, in my house growing up, there was no poetry. Um, my father uh, went to high school, my mother went to high school, but that's as far as it went. Um, and um, indeed, my father, when I was about 17 years old, was trying to figure out how to communicate with me. I was a mystery to him, as most 17-year-olds are to their parents. And he was throwing all kinds of things at me, trying to figure out what would stick. And this is what stuck. Um, this is a poem uh, which is about my birth, you might say, part two, becoming a poet. The Playboy Calendar and the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. The year I graduated from high school, my father gave me a Playboy calendar and the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. On the calendar he wrote, Enjoy the scenery. In the book of poems he wrote, I introduce you to an old friend. The Beast was my only friend in high school. A wrestler who crushed the coach's nose with his elbow, fractured the fingers of all his teammates, could drink half a dozen vanilla milkshakes, and signed up with the Marines because his father was a Marine. I showed the Playboy calendar to the beast, and he howled like a silverback gorilla trying to impress an expedition of anthropologists. I howled smitten with the blonde cold Miss January held high in my simian hand. Yet, alone, at night, I memorized the poet-astronomer of Persia, his saints and sages bickering about eternity, his angel looming in the tavern door with a jug of wine, his battered caravanserai of sultans fading into the dark. At seventeen, the laws of privacy have been revoked by the authorities, and the secret police are everywhere. I learned to hide Kayam and his beard inside the folds of the Playboy calendar. 
in case anyone opened the door without knocking my brother with a baseball mitt or a beery beast. I last saw the beast that summer at the marine base in Virginia called Quantico. He rubbed his shaven head and the sunburn made the stitches from the car crash years ago stand out like tiny crosses in the field of his face. I last saw the Playboy calendar in December of that year when it could no longer tell me the week or the month. I last saw Omar Khayyam this morning. Awake! He said, for morning in the bowl of night has flung the stone that puts the stars to flight. Awake, he said, and I awoke. So, obviously, I believe in the power of poetry, um, and I have seen that power. Uh, in others who also believe. I'm going to read a poem now about a friend of mine. Uh, his name was uh, Jose Jogo Gavea. Um, and uh, Joe Gavea was a uh, working class Portuguese American uh, carpenter and uh, a cab driver, uh, a biker from Cape Cod. Um, and Joe loved poets and he loved poetry, unabashedly, without ego. Imagine that. Um, and so Joe was an inveterate organizer. He organized readings. He organized festivals. He did interviews. He had his own radio program. He even had a poetry column in the local newspaper, the Barnstable Patriot, a poetry column called, yes, The Meter Man. And so Joe considered himself lucky, and indeed he was lucky in every way but one. And when the cancer came back for the last time, I wrote this poem for Joe. I believe strongly in uh, writing elegies for the living. Write the elegy while he's still here. And that's what I did. And Joe got the poem, he began reading it to his friends, uh, calling them from hospice, and then he called me. And he had a favor to ask. He said, my first collection of poetry is coming out um, next spring, in April, and I would like to use this poem as the forward, the entire forward. I had never heard of such a thing, but I said, okay, sure. Joe's book of poems came out in April of 2014, and Joe died in May. Don't tell me poetry makes nothing happen. So this is called Here I Am for Jose Jogo Gavea, 1964 to 2014. He swaggered into the room. A poet at a gathering of poets, and the drinkers stopped 
crowding the cash bar. The talkers stopped their tongues. The music stopped hammering the walls. The way a saloon falls silent when a gunslinger knocks open the swinging doors. Jogo grinning in gray stubble and wraparound shades. Leather Harley vest. Shirt yellow as a prospector's hallucination. Sleeve button to hide the bandage on his arm with the IV pumped chemo through his body a few hours ago. The nurse swabbed a puncture and told him he could go, and Joe Go would go, gunning his red van from the Cape to Boston, striding past the cops who guarded the hallways of the Grand Convention Center, as if to say, here I am, the butcher's son, the Portuguese, the roofer, the carpenter, the cab driver, the biker poet. This was Jogo, who would shout his ode to evil Knievel and biker bars to the brawlers rolled in beer and broken glass who married Josie from Brazil on the beach after the oncologist told him he had two months to live two years ago. That's not enough for me, he said, and will say again when the cancer comes back to coil around his belly and squeeze hard like a python set free and starving in the swamp. He calls me on his cell from the hospital and I can hear him scream when they press the cold x-ray plate to his belly, but he will not drop the phone. He wants the surgery today, right now, surrounded by doctors with hands, blood speckled like the hands of his father, the butcher, sawing through the meat for the family feast. The patient's chart should read, this is Jogo. After every crucifixion, he snaps the cross across his back for firewood. He will roll the stone from the mouth of his tomb and bowl a strike. On the night he silenced the drinkers chewing ice in my ear, a voice in my ear said, What the hell is that man doing here? And I said, That man there, that man will live forever. So Joe's here too. Um... As I said, I've read here before, I have read everywhere you could possibly imagine. The very first reading I ever did was in the bar where I was the bouncer. So I got everybody's attention. Um, since then, I have read in all kinds of places. I once did a reading in a boxing gym in Willimantic, Connecticut. A team of young amateur boxers, mostly Puerto Rican. Uh, the coach was a boxing fan. His name was Juan Perez. He was a, a poetry fan, rather. So I came in to visit. Um, and they sat down on uh, metal folding chairs, and they wrapped their hands in gauze as a kind of meditative activity, the same way you see people knit at a reading. Um, I, uh, I did a reading um, at El Matador Tortilla Factory, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, I did a reading at the Coney Island Aquarium for the jellyfish. I decided to document that one. So um, this is actually a poem in four parts, Roman numerals. I promise you these are four very short parts. This is not one of those poems where you're going to groan every time I get to the next Roman numeral 27. 36. This is called Once Thundering Penguin Herds Darkened the Prairie. 
One, poetry for tourists. The poets bring poetry to the Coney Island Aquarium, around the corner from the wooden roller coaster creaking since 1927, tourists staggering away queasy yet hungry for a hot dog on the boardwalk. We will tempt them to taste the steamed tofu dog of poetry instead. <laughs> Two, poetry for jellyfish. Tonight we declaim poems at the jellyfish exhibit, creatures that plummet like parachutes of light, illuminated mushrooms zooming sideways, amusing themselves, oblivious to the nuances of alliteration and assonance, silently refusing to clap after the last poem. Three, poetry for penguins. The voice of a poet on a loop installed in the penguin exhibit booms out poetry in praise of penguins. Once thundering penguin herds darken the prairie. Once flocks of flapping penguins blocked out the sun. Now they cower behind a rock, peeking, ducking down, listening to poetry for penguins, hearing only the rumble of the almighty orca opening his jaws on Judgment Day. Four. No poetry for the octopus or the security guard. The Coney Island Aquarium is closed. We are locked in. The octopus glares at us with one huge eye. No one fed him today. No one read him any poems. We panic and flap like flightless birds. We rattle the gate, wailing in chorus, We are the poets! Let us out! The security guard glares at us with one huge eye. No one fed him today. No one read him any poems. He unlocks the gate anyway. So here we are in the present, and as a poet, I have to ask myself again about the power of poetry. Even in that last poem, I'm contending with the power of poetry. In fact, that's about the powerlessness of poetry. Because we now live in the age of Trump. And um, I'm going to read a couple of poems now that have uh, everything to do with uh, the role of, of poets as I see it in this, in this new battle. Um, and this first poem is a response um, to something that was in, uh, seemingly in the headlines every day, and then it disappeared, as if uh, this phenomenon was no longer taking place with the election of Donald Trump and the domination of the news cycle by Donald Trump, this story went away. And then, very recently, with the exoneration of the officer in Minnesota who murdered Philando Castile, it came back. And that is the, uh, of course, the pattern of lethal violence um, by police officers against uh, people of color. Uh, mostly African-American, but um, uh, Latinos and others as well. Uh, 
this next poem, which is called How We Could Have Lived or Died This Way, and it refers to uh, eight different documented cases of police violence, uh, lethal police violence against people of color. And uh, some of these cases will be familiar to you. You'll recognize them uh, from the details, whether I'm talking about Walter Scott or, or I'm talking about um, other cases like the Brown case. Um, and then there, there are cases that you won't be familiar with at all because they go back many years. In in fact, one case I am alluding to goes back 40 years to uh, the killing of a man named Martin Tito Perez, who was a Puerto Rican musician and photographer, a friend of my father's, who was arrested on the subway in New York City for, indeed, playing his congas on the subway, and who turned up um, a few hours later um, mysteriously dead at a police precinct station in East Harlem. Um, and that's when I first became of the, uh, aware of the issue myself directly. Um, so um, this poem uh, envisions a time when this kind of violence would be unthinkable. And um, again, called How We Could Have Lived or Died This Way. Epigraph. Not songs of loyalty alone are these, but songs of insurrection also. For I am the sworn poet of every dauntless rebel the world over. Walt Whitman. I see the dark-skinned bodies falling in the street as their ancestors fell before the whip and steel, the last blood pooling, the last breath spitting. I see the immigrant street vendor flashing his wallet to the cops shot so many times there are bullet holes in the soles of his feet. I see the deaf wood carver and his pocket knife crossing the street in front of a cop who yells, then fires. I see the drug raid, the wrong door kicked in, the minister's heart seizing up. I see the man hawking a fist full of cigarettes, the cop's choked hold that makes his wheezing lungs stop wheezing forever. I am in the crowd at the window, kneeling beside the body left on the asphalt for hours, covered in a sheet. I see the suicides. The conga player, handcuffed for drumming on the subway, hanged in the jail cell with his hands cuffed behind him. The suspect leaking blood from his chest in the back seat of the squad car. The 300-pound boy said to stampede barehanded into the bullets, drilling his forehead. I see the coroner nodding, the words he types in his report burrowing into the skin like more bullets. I see the government investigations stacking words buzzing on the page, then suffocated as bees suffocate in a jar. I see the next black man fleeing as the fugitive slave once fled the slave catcher shot in the back for a broken tail light. I see the cop handcuff the corpse. I see the rebels marching, hands upraised before the riot squads, faces in bandanas against the tear gas, and I walk beside them unseen. I see the poets who will write the songs of insurrection, generations unborn will read or hear a century from now, words that make them wonder how we could have lived or died this way, how the descendants of slaves still fled and the descendants of slave catchers still shot them, how we awoke every morning 
burning without the blood of the dead sweating from every pore. If that is one of the great civil rights issues of our time, certainly the, uh, the other great issue of our time um, is immigration. And just as I contemplate how history will see us, when it comes to police killings of people of color, I wonder also about how history will see us when it comes to our treatment of immigration immigration and immigrants in this country i think indeed future generations will judge us based on how we've treated the most vulnerable in our number um, now i, I want to stress i am a puerto rican from brooklyn new york i am not faced with the same kinds of issues that face mexicans or central americans uh coming to this country however when I was very young, in my early 20s, and living in Madison, Wisconsin, I had an encounter, an experience that would forever transform how I saw immigrants in immigration. What started off as a, a lark for me at that tender age turned into an act of civil disobedience that has never left me. For many years, I couldn't even talk about the subject of this poem, much less write about it. So here it is now. There's a little bit of Spanish in this poem. It's called Isabel's Corrido. A corrido is a Mexican ballad, storytelling song, uh, commonly about love, but also very often about politics, about revolution. Uh, I make reference here to Zapata, Emiliano Zapata, the leader of the 1910 Mexican Revolution. And I use a phrase in Spanish that recurs, quiero ver las fotos, I want to see the pictures of the snapshots. So this is a true story. It's all happened. Uh, Isabel's corrido, for Isabel. Francisca said, marry my sister so she can stay in the country. I had nothing else to do. I was 23 and always cold, skidding in cigarette coupon boots from lamppost to lamppost through January in Wisconsin. Francisca and Isabel washed bedsheets at the hotel, sweating in the humidity of the laundry room, conspiring in Spanish. I met her the next day. Isabel was 19 from a village where the elders spoke the language of the Aztecs. She would smile whenever the ice pellets of English clattered around her head. When the justice of the peace said, you may kiss the bride, our lips brushed for the first and only time. The borrowed ring was too small, jammed into my knuckle. There were snapshots of the wedding and champagne in plastic cups. Francisca said, the snapshots will be proof for immigration. We heard rumors of the interview. They would ask me the color of her underwear. They would ask her who rode on top. We invented answers and rehearsed our lines. We flipped through immigration forms at the kitchen table the way other couples shuffled cards for gin rummy. After every hand, I'd deal again. Isabel would say, Quiero ver las fotos. She wanted to see the pictures of a wedding that happened but did not 
happen, her face inexplicably happy, me hoisting a green bottle dizzy after half a cup of champagne. Francisca said, she can sing corridos, songs of love and revolution from the land of Zapata. All night Isabel sang corridos in a bar room where no one understood a word. I was the bouncer and her husband, so I hushed the squabbling drunks who blinked like tortoises in the sun. Her boyfriend in his beer cans never understood why she married me. Once he kicked the front door down and the blast shook the house as if a hand grenade detonated in the hallway. When the cops arrived, I was the translator watching the sergeant, watching her, the inscrutable squaw from every western he had ever seen, bare feet and long black hair. We lived behind a broken door. We lived in a city hidden from the city. When her headaches began, no one called a doctor. When she disappeared for days, no one called the police. When we rehearsed the questions for immigration, Isabel would squint and smile. Quiero ver las fotos, she would say. The interview was canceled, like a play on opening night shut down when the actors are too drunk to take the stage. After she left, I found her crayon drawing of a bluebird tacked to the bedroom wall. I left too, and did not think of Isabel again until the night Francisca called to say, your wife is dead. Something was growing in her brain. I imagined my wife, who was not my wife, who never slept beside me, sleeping in the ground, wondered if my name was carved into the cross above her head. No epitaph and no corrido, another ghost in a riot of ghosts evaporating from the skin of dead Mexicans who staggered for days without water through the desert. Thirty years ago, a girl from the land of Zapata kissed me once on the lips and died with my name nailed to hers like a broken door. I kept a snapshot of the wedding. Yesterday, it washed ashore on my desk. There was a conspiracy to commit a crime. This is my confession. I do it again. So indeed, from there, uh, I left uh, Madison and I went to Boston to go to law school. And the whole idea was to become a legal services lawyer and to serve the Latino community, which indeed I would do. I got my uh, degree from Northeastern University Law School in Boston, and I practiced law for a number of years um, in uh, the Latino community of greater Boston. Um, in particular, um, I was a supervisor of a program called SU. Clinica Legal. So Clinica Legal um, was a legal services program for low-income Spanish-speaking tenants in a town called Chelsea, Massachusetts. Uh, you, if you know the Boston area, you know Chelsea. It's a, a tough little town uh, right across the Tobin Bridge from Boston. You take the 111 bus. Um, it's a gateway city, a city of immigrants. It always has been. And in the last generation, the immigrants have been coming from the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, Puerto Rico, the DR. They've been coming from Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, and from Southeast Asia, from Vietnam, Cambodia. And um, so we represented 
these uh, clients in um, in uh, landlord tenant cases, and we train law students from Suffolk University Law School to do the same thing. Um, this is um, this poem is about that experience. I wrote a series of these so-called lawyer poems, and it's one of the poems that appears in Zapata's Disciple, the book that was indeed uh, banned um, in Tucson uh, and uh, Arizona at large as a result of the um, uh, law called HB 2281, House Bill 2281, that uh, outlawed um, Mexican-American studies curriculum in particular and ethnic studies in general throughout the state of Arizona. Uh, and this is what they were trying to get rid of. Um, poems called Offerings to an Ulcerated God. Mrs. Lopez refuses to pay rent, and we want her out, the landlord's lawyer said, tugging at his law school ring. The judge called for an interpreter, but all the interpreters were gone, trafficking in Spanish at the criminal session on the second floor. A volunteer stood up in the gallery. Mrs. Lopez showed the interpreter a poker hand of snapshots, the rat curled in a glue trap next to the refrigerator, the water frozen in the toilet, a door without a doorknob. No rent for this. I know the law, and I want to speak, she whispered to the interpreter. Tell her she has to pay, and she has ten days to get out. The judge commanded Rose, so the rest of the courtroom rose and left the bench. Suddenly, the courtroom clattered with the end of business. The clerk of the court gathered her files and the bailiff went to lunch. Mrs. Lopez stood before the bench, still holding up her fan of snapshots like an offering. This ulcerated God refused to taste, while the interpreter felt the burning bubble in his throat as he slowly turned to face her. was me. That was us. Here's another poem from that same uh, book that was banned in Arizona. Um, since I was practicing law under these circumstances, I saw and heard a lot of very strange things. Um, and this next poem is a found poem. It's a short bilingual poem. All I did was come along and stick a title on top. So it's the lazy poet's way of doing business. Um, if you don't know Spanish, the only thing you need to know to understand this poem is that there is a mistranslation in the middle, which makes perfect sense since for uh, Latinos, the legal system is mostly a series of mistranslations anyway. So here's the poem. Again, this actually happened in a district court in Boston. And uh, it's called Mariano Explains Yankee Colonialism to Judge Collings. Judge, does the prisoner understand his rights? Interpreter, ¿entienes sus derechos? Prisoner, pal carajo. Interpreter, yes. That's it. It's not the wasteland. Thank God for it. Um, and by the way, pal carajo does not mean yes. I've even heard people, when I, I read that poem, I've heard people turn to each other and say, you know, who's this Paul Carajo guy? <laughs> so I'm going to be writing a poem about Paul Carajo. 
Um, of course, that's a that's an expression that's very common in Puerto Rico, um, and it's it really is an untranslatable. Right? You try translating that, you can't do it. You know, but if you do use that phrase, I recommend that you have your hands free because those are fighting words. Um, and maybe some of you have even seen the headlines about Puerto Rico in the news, and uh, you may be aware of the the debt of more than seventy billion dollars that tiny island uh, is now uh, saddled with a debt which is owed to um, uh, vulture hedge funds um, and uh, you may be aware that there's a a federal uh, fiscal control board that now controls the entire economy of Puerto Rico and that has mandated the closing of hundreds of schools and hospitals just so that these vulture hedge funds can be paid off um, and uh, and that so there is a, a depression in, in Puerto Rico, um, and yet there's so much more to Puerto Rico than that. Um, and I'm going to read uh, a couple of poems now that refer directly to the island. My father used to say, "There's the American dream, and there's a Puerto Rican dream." And that the Puerto Rican dream was different from the American dream. You're all familiar with the American dream. Um, and we all believe in it or do not believe in it to one degree or another. The Puerto Rican dream classically was this, at least in, in my generation, and I think even in, in subsequent generations. The Puerto Rican dream was you came to this country from the island or, 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 and, and you worked in a factory or an office building for 25 or 30 years and you saved your money, and then you went back to the island, and you bought a little tiny plot of land where you could raise chickens. That was the Puerto Rican dream. And it always involved chickens. So, I mean, to put this in perspective, you imagine you, you come to this country and you, you know, you come to New York City and you work um, in, in some god-awful factory for three decades so you can move to the Spanish-speaking equivalent of Vermont. <laughs> but that was the Puerto Rican dream. And one day it will be again the Puerto Rican dream once we've lived through this latest nightmare. Now, usually such dreams don't come to pass. You, you don't meet these people. You hear about the dream, but you never meet the people who achieved it. I met one. I met the guy. And this poem, again from Zapata's Disciple, um, is about the Puerto Rican dream. Uh, it's called The Janitor's Garden for Felix Rodriguez I Bonito, Puerto Rico, 1997. The office building at 42nd and Lexington sat awaiting the night janitor like an executive anticipating a shoe shine. Sixty floors mopped and waxed every night, five nights a week, 50 weeks a year for 45 years. 675,000 floors gleaming. The ammonia streamed its clear poison in a cascade as if from the temple of Ammon in faraway Egypt where ammonia began. He inhaled the burning breath of ammonia for half a century and did not die. He polished the floors for the polished shoes of industrialists while they slept, yet did not sleep with rum, awake and sweat. He stacked the toilet paper of lawyers after midnight as they stacked contracts and wills and did not quiver with desire for their paper. The janitor kept his garden every night. 
When the elevator doors opened and his mop slid across the floor, on that glistening spot an orange tree would sprout, roots fingering through the tile. A swipe of the mop and another orange tree scraped the ceiling with his unfolding fan of branches. Then again, through the hallway was an orange grove in bloom, brilliant with the trees of China, as we say in Puerto Rico. The scent of oranges banished ammonia, and the cleaning crew dripped pulp and juice to their elbows. Not one sneezed or coughed in Manhattan slush, walking home after night shift. On some mornings, a secretary would report that the floors had been waxed with orange juice. An errand boy might find peels floating in all the toilets or the day janitor discover an orange in a paper bag scrawled with his name. The lawyers snorted, blamed the menstrual cycle or the imagination of colored people, then went to lunch. Today, Felix keeps his garden in the hills of Iwanito. He is bald as an orange. Without the ceiling pressing down, the trees become celestial jugglers levitating orange planets. I climb to the roof and soak my beard with luminous fruit as he glances up from the garden, leaning on his mop. I should add that I bonito can best be translated as also oh, pretty. Right? So he's from the town of also oh, pretty, Puerto Rico. Um, my father was born in a very, very similar place. He was born in a town called Utualo, Puerto Rico, uh, also way up in the mountains in the center of the island, the Cordillera Central. Um, he was born there in the year 1930. He migrated to this country in 1939. Um, and um, the last section of this book, I'm coming back to this book to close out my reading. The last section of this book consists of a series of 10 poems I wrote after my father's death. Um, my father uh, died um, in uh, February of 2014. And um, I um, was assigned the task of writing a poem for his memorial service. Um, and I decided to uh, take a writer's retreat all the way up um, here in the Northeast Kingdom um, and to get away and, and just focus for a week on writing a poem uh, for his memorial. And instead of writing one poem, I ended up writing ten. And so they all appear here. Um, I'm going to read you the first and the last poem in that uh, sequence. Uh, this first poem indeed takes us back to the island of Puerto Rico. Um, and uh, it begins with a ceremony. It's a ceremony that will be familiar to any of you who have ever lost a parent. It's the ceremony of going through the junk. And you are faced with this all of a sudden. Somebody dies, and there's this pile of trash. And you start going through it, and you begin to think the unthinkable. I'm going to throw this out. And then you come across the treasure. And of course, it's a treasure only to you. But treasure, indeed, it is. And in my case, the treasure consisted of two uh, little uh, Kodak boxes that were marked Puerto Rico, Noche Buena, Diciembre, 
1968. All right, and and indeed, um, these were those those old uh, Super 8 home movies, silent movies that we used to make in the 1960s. We thought we were very technologically sophisticated. Um, and um, I recovered these and, they, and then uh, had them uh, burned onto uh, a DVD. Um, and I watched this seven minutes of, of, of film, of silent home movies. And I had been holding it together up to that point, you know, because I was the one in, who was responsible to hold it together. There's always one, right? I was the one who had to go and take my mother to the mortuary. I was the one responsible for arranging for my father's cremation, and I was the one uh, organizing the memorial service and so on and so forth. But this got me. This finally got me. And as you, and you'll, you'll see why. So um, this poem is called Haunt Me, and it is for my father, Francisco Luis Frank Espada. I am the archaeologist. I sift the shards of you. Cufflinks, passport photos, a button from the march on Washington with a black hand shaking a white hand, letters in Spanish, your birth certificate from a town high in the mountains. I cup your silence, and the silence melts like ice in a cup. I search for you in two yellow Kodak boxes marked Puerto Rico, Nochebuena, December 1968. In the 8-millimeter silence, the Aspadas gather, elders born before the Spanish-American War. My grandfather on crutches after fracturing his fossil hip, his blind brother on a cane. You greet the elders and they call you Tato, the name they call you there. Uncles and cousins sing in a chorus of tongues without sound, vibration of guitar strings stilled by an unseen hand, maracas shaking empty of seats. The camera wobbles from the singers to the television and the astronauts sending pictures of the moon back to Earth. Down by the river, women still pound laundry on the rocks. I am eleven, again. A boy from the faraway city of ice that felled my grandfather, startled after the blind man with the cane, stroked my face with his hand dry as straw, crying out, Bendito. At the table, I hear only the silence that rises like the river in my big ears. You sit next to me, clowning for the camera, tugging the lapels on your jacket, slicking back your black hair, brown skin darker from days in the sun. You slide your arm around my shoulder, your good right arm, your pitching arm, and my moon face radiates, and the mountain song of my uncles and cousins plays in my head. Watching you now, my face stings as it stung when my blind great-uncle brushed my cheekbone searching for his own face. When you died, Tato, I took a razor to the movie looping in my head, cutting the scenes where you curled an arm around my shoulder, all the times you would squeeze the silence out of me so I could hear the cries and songs again. When you died, I heard only the silences between us, the shouts belling the air before the phone went dead, all the words melting like ice in a cup. 
That way I could set my jaw and take my mother's hand at the mortuary, greet the elders in my suit and tie at the memorial, say all the right words. Yet my face stings at last. I rewind and watch your arm drape across my shoulder over and over. A year ago, you pressed a Kodak slide of my grandfather into my hand and said, Next time, stay longer. Now, in the silence that is never silent, I push the chair away from the table and say to you, Sit down. Tell me everything. Haunt me. I'll finish my reading with this poem. And this indeed, the poem I'm about to read is indeed the poem that uh, ultimately I read at my father's memorial service in a community center in Brooklyn in May of 2014. Um, my father, uh, Frank Espada, was a larger-than-life figure. Um, think of a Puerto Rican Paul Bunyan. You know, the biggest guy in the room, the biggest voice in the room. He was um, a civil rights activist. He was a community organizer. He was a leader, some would say the leader, of the Puerto Rican community in New York City in the 1960s and the early 1970s. That's a community of one million people. And my father was a documentary photographer. He created something called the Puerto Rican Diaspora Documentary Project, a photo documentary of the Puerto Rican migration. And my father's photographs are now in the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, they are in the Smithsonian Museum of American Art, the Smithsonian Museum of American History, and the Library of Congress. How do you write an, a memorial for somebody like that? How do you write an elegy for somebody like that? Well, I needed a central metaphor, and the central metaphor turned out to be a tiny plant, a weed, really, that grows on the island of Puerto Rico. Uh, and it grows in many places. In Puerto Rico, however, it has a totally unique name. It's a pantropical weed. The Latin is Mimosa Purica. In Puerto Rico, however, it is called the Mori Vivi. Mori Vivi is a compound word. Mori Vivi. I died, I lived. Mori vivi. That's because it's one of those plants. You touch the leaves, they curl up. And then they open again. The sun goes down, leaves close, and the first light open again. Mori vivi. I found my metaphor. So this poem. Uh, is about the many lives, the many deaths, and the many rebirths of Francisco Luis Espada. Because indeed, he's here. Trust me. So I'll finish my reading tonight with this poem. El Moribibi, in memoriam Frank Espada, 1930-2014. The Spanish means I died, I lived. In Puerto Rico, the leaves of El Moribibi close in the dark and open at first light. The fronds curl at a finger's touch and then unfurl again.
My father, a mountain born of mountains, the tallest Puerto Rican in New York, who scraped doorways, who could crack the walls with the rumble of his voice, kept Amori Vivi growing in his ribs. He would die, then live. My father spoke in the tongue of El Morivivi, teaching me the parable of Joe Fleming, who screwed his lit cigarette into the arms of the spicks he caught, flapping like fish. My father was a bony boy, the nerves in his back crushed by the ILO Coal and Ice Company, the load he lifted up too many flights of stairs. Three times he would meet to brawl for a crowd after school. The first time, my father opened his eyes to gravel and the shoes of his enemy. The second time, he rose and dug his arm up to the elbow and the monster's belly. So badly did he want to tear out the heart and eat it. The third time, Fleming did not show up and the boys with cigarette burns clapped the spindly champion on the back all the way down the street. Fleming would become a cop fired for breaking bones in too many faces. He died smoking in bed, a sheet of flame up to his chin. There was a Mori Vivi sprouting in my father's chest. He would die, then live. He spat obscenities like sunflower seeds at the driver who told him to sit at the back of the bus in Mississippi, then slipped his cap over his eyes and fell asleep. He spent a week in jail, called it the best week of his life, strode to the jailhouse door and sat behind the driver of the bus on the way out of town, his Air Force uniform all that kept the noose from his neck. He would come to know the jailhouse again among hundreds of demonstrators ferried by police to Hart Island on the East River where the city of New York stacks the coffins of anonymous and stillborn bodies. Here, Confederate prisoners once wept for the stars and bars. Now, the prisoners sang freedom songs. The jailers outlawed phone calls. So we were sure my father must be a body like the bodies rolling waterlogged in the East River till he came back from the island of the dead, black hair combed meticulously. When the riots burned in Brooklyn night after night, my father was a peacemaker on the corner with a megaphone. A fiery chunk of concrete fell from the sky and missed his head by inches. My mother would tell me, your father is out dodging bullets. He spoke at a rally with Malcolm X, incantatory words billowing through the bundled crowd, lifting hands and faces, teach, they cried. My father clicked a photograph of Malcolm as he bent to hear a question finger pressed against the chin. Two months later, the assassin stampeded the crowd to shoot Malcolm, blood leaping from his chest as he fell. My father would die too, but then he would live again. After every riot, every rally, every arrest, every night in jail, the change from his pockets landing hard on the dresser at 4 a.m. Every time I swore he was gone for good. My father knew the secrets of El Morivivi. That he would die, then live. He drifted off at the wheel, drove into a guardrail, shook his head and walked away without a world with scars or fractures. He passed out from the heat in the subway, toppled onto the tracks and somehow missed the third rail.
He tied a white apron across his waist to open a grocery store, pulled a revolver from the counter to startle the gangsters demanding protection, then put up signs for a clearance sale as soon as they backed out the door with their hands in the air. When the family finally took a vacation in the mountains of the Hudson Valley, a hotel with waiters in white jackets and white paint peeling in the room, the roof exploded in flame as if the ghost of Joe Fleming and his cigarette trailed us everywhere. And it was then that my father appeared in the smoke like a general leading the charge in battle, shouting commands at the volunteer fire company, steering the water from the hoses since he was immune to death by fire or water as if he wore the crumbled leaves of El Morivivi in an amulet slung around his neck. My brother called to say El Morivivi was gone. My father tore at the wires, the electrodes, the IV, saying that he wanted to go home. The hospital was a jailhouse in Mississippi. The furious pulse that fired his heart in every fight flooded the chambers of his heart. The doctor scrutinized the film, the grainy shadows in the light, but could never see. My father was Amore Vivi. I died. I lived. He died. He lived. He dies. He lives. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much.
Thank you. 